make a little confession this morning that I wrestled deeply with whether to include uh, verses 27 to 31 with what went before or to carry it over to what we're going to look at this morning. It's kind of a hinge, and I wasn't sure where to land. Most people either preach it by itself or they attach it to what went before because it is attached to that. But I, I have settled on bringing it in with the rest of what we're going to look at in chapters four, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 this morning. And I th- hope you'll see that it does fit nicely with that and go together with it. We're looking at Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 27, and we're going to read down to chapter 4, verse 12. The Apostle Paul is writing a congregation he has never met. This is an unusually long letter from someone who has never met the believers in this church, and yet he has a burden. He has a burden to be there with them. He told us that in chapter 1. He has a longing to be with them. He has a longing to go past them and even to carry the gospel to Spain. And yet he sees something in this congregation and And the pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul is at work in seeking to address what may not be evident on the surface as an issue that he sees in the church, and that is their need to really grasp the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Um, You all know, I'm sure, we talk about the, the five solas of the Reformation, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, through the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. And that comes really straight out of the pages of Romans, Galatians, Ephesians especially. But I think you're going to see this morning that the apostle is now moving deeply into that section of this letter in which he parses in the most profound way the nuances of the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And so we're looking at Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 27. Paul now, speaking about God having provided a righteousness in Christ that he imputes to us apart from law-keeping, now says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, or literally as a debt. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He essentially, he then received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I don't know if you have ever spent much time reading it. It is definitely one of these books that would be worthwhile uh, making a priority to read, but, but Jonathan Edwards had this published after David Brainerd died. It was the diary of David Brainerd, and you may or may not know that Brainerd was a disciple of Edwards. He lived in Jonathan Edwards' house for a time, It is uh, speculated that he and Edward's daughter, Jerusha, had a very special relationship that would have ended in marriage had Brainerd not died so young. He died at 29 years old after going out to um, the Indian Reservation in New Jersey, and he would be out in the freezing cold preaching every day, praying himself through that very difficult ministry, fighting off sickness. But one of the interesting things that you find as you read David Brainerd's diary is an insight into the complexities of the human heart. Brainerd will talk about the things that kept him from coming to Christ and the things that he found grievous about the message of the gospel before he was a Christian. Listen to this. In his diary, Brainerd said, another grievance I had basically against the gospel was that faith alone was the condition of salvation. Brainerd hated the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He said, I could not bear that all I had done should stand for mere nothing. I hated that everything I did meant nothing before God. Now, Brainerd will come to faith in Christ, and then he'll write this, listen, It is sweet to be nothing and less than nothing so that Christ may be all in all. This is a man at one time said, I hated the doctrine of justification by faith alone. I couldn't stand the thought that God wouldn't accept anything I did. And then he said, I love being nothing, that Christ may be all. And that's really where the Apostle Paul has been trying to take us here. He has been building up to this. He has given us the solution to the problem of our unrighteousness. He has said in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, that God has provided a righteousness in Christ, apart from the law that he freely imputes to all of those who believe in Christ. That's the solution to the problem of our unrighteousness. And it is entirely outside us. Martin Luther used to talk about it as an alien righteousness. 
It is alien to us. It is foreign to us. It is outside of us. And yet God imputes it to us. He credits it to us. Now, that is the only way that any of us will ever stand on Judgment Day. Paul has essentially said in this letter that the gospel includes more than just your sins being forgiven. You need a positive righteousness. You need your sins forgiven and a positive righteousness. And Paul knows, because remember Paul, a lot like David Brainerd, he was a man that knew what his past was like. Remember, Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees. He thought that he was establishing a right standing with God by keeping the law. He was trying to be blameless in his law keeping. And then he's converted marvelously on the Damascus Road. And he comes to understand that it is Christ and only Christ. It is all in Christ. It is by faith alone in Christ. And then he carries that gospel out while knowing that most of his countrymen, most of his, most of his fellow Israelites in that day hated that message and, like David Brainerd, found it to be grievous to them. And so here, what Paul, I think, is doing, you'll remember he addressed the Jews back in chapter 2 and said, you're no better than the Gentiles, that they are wicked, you are wicked also. They are openly rebellious. You are inwardly rebellious. Paul has exposed everyone, flattened everybody. Now he comes back, I believe he comes back to address the Jews because he knows that his fellow countrymen are trusting in their law-keeping and boasting that they're better than other people because they have the law. They're circumcised. They're not like the Gentiles. And they're trusting in their national heritage, They're trusting in their pedigree. They're trusting in their works. They're trusting in themselves. That's the real real impetus behind what Paul is trying to address here when he raises that question in verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? Now, I want us to consider three things this morning. I want us to first consider justification by faith alone and the exclusion of boasting, the exclusion of boasting. Secondly, I want us to consider justification by faith alone and the witness of the Old Testament. And then third, I want us to consider justification by faith alone and the inclusion of the Gentiles, the exclusion of boasting, the witness of the Old Testament, the inclusion of the Gentiles. And notice that as Paul walks into this this hinge, as it were, between uh, what just went before and what follows, he does something very unusual, and you would, have to, you would really have to read the Pauline letters very carefully to understand why this is unusual. Um, I always get chuckle when people tell me how much I, I talk in a sermon and how much I give people. The Apostle Paul would have given you way more, I am, I am certain. Paul was not a man of short sentences. Paul was very complex, so much so, remember, Peter said that he wrote many difficult things that are hard to understand. He was a giant intellect, and yet here, what he does is is a series of uncharacteristic short questions and answers. Um, There are four questions, verses 27 to 31, and there are very, very brief, short answers he gives. Now, that should seem strange because Paul never does that. But what's genius about what Paul's doing, and if you watched any golf this week, you saw a lot of people tee off. Paul is setting up, he is teeing up here everything 
Everything he goes on to say in chapter 4, everything there is built on this. He's going to unpack these ideas in the next chapter. And he gives us those four questions, and he is intent now on explaining that our justification, if anyone is going to gain a right standing with God, if anyone is going to be seen by God as righteous on judgment day, it will only ever be by faith and faith alone. It will only be by faith alone. Christ is the basis of our justification. Our faith in Christ is not the basis of justification. God doesn't accept us as righteous because we believe. We receive his righteousness because he provided it in Christ. And yet faith is the only means or instrument by which we will be justified. Now you'll notice that Paul sets up this contrast after asking that question, what becomes a boasting, by saying, um, it's excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Now, Paul is going to contrast here works with faith. Now, keep in mind, the Apostle Paul will later tell Christians that they should be zealous for good works. So he's not saying good works have no place in the life of a Christian. He's saying our works play in no way whatsoever into our standing before God. In fact, they are so antithetical that Paul pits them against each other and says the complete opposite of faith is work. Either we do or we believe. That's it. Now what he doesn't say, and you have to listen very carefully, he doesn't say justification is not by work, period. He goes on and he says it's by faith. He supplies the antecedent. It is by faith in Christ that we receive the righteousness of God freely given to us by grace alone. That's marvelous. Because if we tried to work enough, we could never do enough. Because God's law demanded absolute sinless perfection. By the way, the next grievance that that David Brainerd sets out in his diary is he said, I hated I hated that God required sinless perfection to his law. He hated it because he thought he could keep it. He hated it because he wasn't trusting in Christ. He hated it because he was self-righteous. He hated it because he didn't want to come off his works. Um, by the way, that is, that is really the, the besetting sin of besetting sins of all people. You know, we tend to think those egregious sins that we've all committed, and if you haven't done it in act, you've done it in your mind and heart, those really grievous sins, we tend to think they're the big ones, but pride and self-righteousness, that's, that's what keeps men and women from coming to Christ. It's not their sexual immorality, ultimately. It's not their hatred in their heart for others. It's their love of self and their desire to justify themselves. And Paul wants us to understand, look, there is a way of righteousness, and it is by God's free grace, and it is by faith alone in Christ. And it's us really saying, what is faith? It's not another work. It's not, if I can muster enough, if I can just muster up enough belief, then I'll be okay. It's us saying to God, Lord, you have said in your word 
that you are a God who has promised righteousness. You have told us how you have done that. You have sent your son. You have accomplished redemption. You have told us we add nothing to that, and I take you at your word, and I receive Christ. And I will rise, and I will go to Jesus. And it's not anything we do. Even that is God drawing us by grace. Even the faith he requires to justify us is a gift that he gives us to exercise to receive what he provides. Isn't that amazing? It's a big circle that goes straight back through God to God's glory. Um, Listen to this. John Murray, late professor at Westminster Seminary, said, Faith looks to what God does. Faith looks to what God does. Works have respect to what we are. Don't miss that. What's the object? If God's the object, faith looks to him and what he's doing. If we're the object, we're going to try to work and look at ourselves. Murray says the antithesis is not simply between the worker and the non-worker, but between the worker and the person who does not work but believes. Now, I'm not sure that Paul makes this clearer anywhere than he does in this section. And so works are excluded. Boasting is excluded. Um, One of the marvelous things that Paul does, by the way, is that he wants to be so crystal clear about what the gospel is, he wants to make sure you understand what it's not and what doesn't play into it, even as he sets out what it is and what does play into it. Um, I want us to secondly and most... in a most focused way, consider justification by faith alone and the witness of the Old Testament. Now notice, turn over to chapter 4, and I I mentioned that I think Paul is unpacking what we just looked at here in these 12 verses. And he does something that's absolutely brilliant. This is arguably one of the most brilliant, genius sections in anything Paul's ever written. Paul understands that his fellow countrymen revere no one so much as Abraham. He understands that they know that Abraham was their father, according to the flesh, that God had called Abraham out, that he had separated him, that he had said, I'm going to make you a great nation. They they admired Abraham so much, so when they contended with Jesus in John chapter 8, they said to him, we have Abraham as our father. That, that they trusted in that lineage and that, that descent. It was everything for them. We descended from Abraham. We're not like other people. And so Paul does something absolutely brilliant. He points to Abraham and he says, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Now, very interesting. I I mentioned already that the Jews prided themselves in having the law of Moses. They trusted in that. They tried to establish their own righteousness by by law-keeping, works of the law. And, And yet, you may not know this, the law was not given until 400 some years after Abraham. There was no external law. Abraham didn't have the Mosaic law given to him, codified. He didn't have 
the ceremonial laws. He didn't have any of that. And so it's, it's an absolute impossibility, Paul's saying, that Abraham could have been accepted by God as righteous by something he did. Because God had not given him the law to say, now do this. And so he says, look, what, what did Abraham gain by works? Nothing. He gained it by faith. And notice what he does in verse 3, and this is so important. If I could, if I could just hammer one, one, there are lots of verses in this passage I would hammer into our minds and hearts, but if I could just press one statement into your minds this morning, it would be this, what does the scripture say? Notice what Paul does. He goes right back to God's word. He goes to the Old Testament. He goes to Genesis 15, 6. And he says, don't you know what the scriptures say? Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him for righteousness. Now that's going to be the great passage in scripture. Paul's going to come back to that over and over and over in his letters. If you want to know where the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone is rooted, it's rooted in that example of Abraham receiving the promises of God. God said, you're going to have a son. He's going to be heir. The nations are going to be blessed. You're going to be the father of many nations. And in Genesis 15, Moses, who gave the law, was the one that wrote, Abraham believed, and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's the simplicity of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Abraham believed he was credited as righteous because Abraham was looking forward to the same Christ we look back at. How do we know that? I've mentioned John 8 already. And you may remember in John 8 that Jesus is contending with the Jews. They say, we have Abraham as our father. We're not born of fornication. We're not of the devil. And they're arguing with the son of Abraham, who is the redeemer himself, to whom God had promised redemption. And and Jesus makes this incredible statement. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He claims to be Yahweh, who appeared to Abraham, And then he says in John 8, 58, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham was looking forward by faith in Christ. He didn't know all that we know, but he had the promises of God. He knew that it would be one of his descendants. He knew it would be a redeemer. He was trusting the God of promise to send the redeemer, and so he was looking forward by faith in Christ. By the way, this is how he could offer up Isaac. He had the promises of God. God had said, in your seed, all the nations are going to be blessed. He gives him Isaac as the seed from whom Christ will come. And now he says, now kill Isaac. And the writer of Hebrews said, by faith, he reasoned that if he followed through and if God had allowed him to kill Isaac, God would have raised Isaac from the dead and given him back and fulfilled that promise by bringing Christ into the world. That's awesome. Now that's what faith looks like in action, but justifying faith is found in those words, Abram believed, and it was counted to him for, righteous, for righteousness. Now, I want us to come back to Abraham in just a second. 
because Paul will. But then notice Paul kind of adds an accessory. One theologian said David becomes like, like, a, like a nice handbag to Abraham. So now he moves to David, and notice what he does. He says in verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And and Paul is going to quote one verse out of Psalm 32. And he's going to see the whole doctrine of justification by faith alone in Psalm 32, verse 1. And he says, just as David says, notice verse 7 and 8, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. That's one side of our justification. Sins forgiven. And then notice whose sins are covered. I think he sees the the covering of the righteousness of Christ there. Blessed is the one to whom his lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Now notice verse 8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord, literally in Greek, does not impute sin or count sin. Now that's amazing. That's amazing because everything we do should be counted to us on judgment day. Every sinful word, every sinful action, every sinful thought, it should all be put in our bank account. If you're good with money, let me just tell you, every word, thought, and action that's sinful, you're just, you're investing in wrath. That's what we're doing. We're investing in wrath. We've got a diversified portfolio of wickedness. And it's not going to stand before God, and it should be counted to us. It should be all for you for Judgment Day. And yet David said, blessed is the one to whom the Lord does not count, impute his sin. That's amazing. The non-imputation of my sin, the non-imputation of your sin, that God wouldn't hold that against you because he has covered you In the righteousness of Christ, he has forgiven you and cleansed you in the blood of Jesus. He has washed away the guilt of your sin if you're in Christ. And he has justified you by faith and faith alone. Now, back to Abraham. I want to go back. And I want you to see the logic of what Paul's saying. If if Paul's wrong, let's do a little logical propositional argument. Let's say, let's say you're like, I don't like this Paul so much. Paul's wrong. I hope you're not doing that. I've heard people say that, actually. Uh, I like Jesus, not Paul. Don't do that. Now, if Paul's wrong, he wages this argument. Notice verse 4 about Abraham and his works versus faith. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So, He's saying if if salvation, if your justification is by what you do, then God would be your debtor and he would owe you salvation, which is unthinkable. But if it's by faith, he says, it's a free gift from God, which is the only way it can be. And then he goes on to say, notice this, he says to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies, notice this, look carefully, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Who gets justified, according to this passage? The ungodly. Who gets a right standing before God? The ungodly. Who gets saved? The ungodly. Paul doesn't say here ever, the godly man gets justified. 
He uses the strongest possible word. By the way, this is marvelous. Underline that, mark that, meditate on that. But to him who believes in him who justifies the ungodly. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying before Abraham was justified, he was ungodly. That's shocking if you were a Jew because they revered him as a godly man. But Abram, before he was justified, was worshiping idols across the Jordan River with his pagan family. And God said, follow me and I'm going to make you a great nation. He was an ungodly, wicked idolater, just like every one of us by nature. Martin Lloyd-Jones, reflecting on this, says that our great problem is that we, by nature, are constantly trying to make a God for ourselves, and that God is ourselves. And, And we have to be helped off of that to see that there is a God who is infinitely holy and good and righteous and pure and upright, who cannot bear with evil, and yet he will only justify ungodly people who believe in Christ. That's amazing. You get a perfectly right standing for all eternity if you will just acknowledge that you're ungodly and you will trust in the Lord Jesus. That's amazing. Now, I want to jump down very briefly to our third point, justification by faith alone and and the inclusion of the Gentiles. Now, we've talked about Jews and Gentiles. So much of this letter is made up in that. The Gentiles were all the nations outside of Israel. Israel thought they deserved salvation. Paul's explained to them that even their father, Abraham, only got it by faith alone. Now he's going to do something even more brilliant. And this is absolutely genius. The Apostle Paul is going to explain that God justified Abram, not while he was a Jew, but while he was a Gentile. That's amazing. And he's going to do it by focusing on when Abram got the sign of circumcision that made a Jew a Jew. Notice what he does here. He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised, for the Jews? Is it also not for the uncircumcised, for the Gentiles? Notice this. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Oh, this is awesome. Look at verse 10. I would retranslate this, when was it counted to him, rather than how. When was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Paul says it was not after, it was before. That's enormous. That means if Abraham Abraham is the father of all who believe, of Jews and Gentiles, if he is the father of those that believe, the father of those who have faith, and he is, And that's Paul's point in the next section. The marvelous thing is he had to be justified before God made him a Jew so that he could be not only the example of a believer, but the father of all who believe no matter what nation they come from. Think about the brilliance of God. God did that and put that in his words so that you would be astonished at his brilliance. He justifies Abram. Genesis 15, based on his promises, Abram believes he's righteous. Then, many years later, because remember, um, Ishmael is 13. Over in Genesis 17, it's many years later, 20-some years later, 
God gives him the covenant sign of circumcision and creates the Jewish nation. But he's been justified for all those years before he got the covenant sign. Why is that important? What difference does that make to us? Number one, it means anyone can believe in Christ and and receive the same justification as Abraham. Same faith that justified Abraham justifies us, which is marvelous, which is Paul's big point here. Um, It also ought to go to strengthen you in the absolute wisdom of God that he did all that to prove to you that there's one gospel and only one gospel, that it is timeless, that Paul didn't invent it, that it didn't start with the coming of Christ, and that Abraham modeled for us what it means to believe and to be justified. And then number three, and you got to listen real carefully, number three is in the new covenant, baptism replaces circumcision. Now, here in verse 11, there's a very complicated uh, statement here. Notice verse 10. When was it counted? Before or after he was circumcised? Not, be, not after, but before. And then notice verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So he didn't even have the covenant sign. He was a believer. He was right before God. He was justified in Christ. And yet the better part of his descendants trusted in that covenant sign that they had on them, that circumcision. Now remember, Abraham believes and is circumcised, and then he gives that sign to his children, to all his offspring, all his male offspring on the eighth day. Why? Not because they had the same faith he had, Because the covenant sign wasn't saying, look at the faith I have, look what I did. It's God saying, I am going to give you righteousness if you will believe in my son. It is never something, the the sign of baptism is never something we're saying, look what I did. Never is it that in scripture. It is always God saying, look at what I have promised to do. Here is my seal of righteousness. Here is how you're going to be justified. The blood of Christ is going to wash away the sins of all who believe. The righteousness of Christ is going to cover those who believe. Um, That means that none of us can trust in our baptism, Christian upbringing, heritage, pedigree, any external thing that says, look at me, look at what I am. It's always look at who God is, look at what God has done. You know, I'm about to wrap this up, so if you want me to, That's fine. I could go another hour on this. It's so important because, listen, we are all on the brink of eternity. We are all on the brink of eternity. Every one of us. Some of us, it'll happen sooner than others. And this is the only thing that matters. This is it. Your bank account isn't going to mean squat on that day. It's not going to mean anything. Your experiences, your pleasures, your joys, your spouse, your children, none of it is going to matter. None of it. Are you right with God by faith alone in Christ alone? And Paul will go to the length he goes to to help you understand this is the thing. This is the centerpiece. If you don't have this, you don't have eternal life and it's just judgment. But God is so marvelous. The God who should judge all of us for our wickedness has said, let me show you what I'm going to provide for you. And all you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus. All you have to do is take me at my word. All you have to do is receive and rest in Christ. Really receive and rest in him. 
you know, there's so much more here. Um, I want to ask you this morning, and, and it's a simple question. It's a question that got John Bunyan thrown in prison when he was preaching in that barn. The second time when he went to prison for 12 years for preaching the gospel. And he said being away from his blind daughter was like having the flesh ripped off of him. What did, what did John Bunyan do to be ripped away from his blind 12-year-old daughter and thrown in jail for 12 years? He said, do you believe in the Son of God? That's what he did. He was preaching. Do you believe in the Son of God? That's the question to you this morning. Do you believe in the Son of God? You're either like David Brainerd before he was converted or after. You either hate this with everything in you or you love this because it is so sweet. We are either those who say, I cannot bear that all I have done should stand for mere nothing, or we are going to be those by trusting in Christ that say, it is sweet to be nothing and less than nothing. We are nothing and less than nothing, and it is sweet because Christ is all and in all. I hope no matter where you are in your life, I hope that you will be looking to Christ for the righteousness that God freely imputes, credits to you by faith and faith alone in Christ and Christ alone. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we are nothing and less than nothing. We, we are so polluted with sin and uncleanness by nature. We we have oftentimes made gods of ourselves. We have oftentimes, Lord, sought to establish our own righteousness to bring you something to in some way affect you so that you would accept us. And Lord, you have said that there is a way of acceptance. We thank you that it is by faith alone in Christ. We do pray that every man and woman and boy and girl from the youngest to the the eldest here, that you would give us that grace of saving faith. Lord, would you justify each one that is here? If you have not justified one here, we pray that today would be the day in which they know that, that grace and that gift of righteousness. Lord, would you settle the hearts of your people who are justified in Christ, that they would know more, more of what it means to be accepted by faith alone. Lord, would you be at work in us, renewing our minds and our hearts and our wills through these things. We do pray these in Jesus' name. Amen.